If you have a Bible with you this morning, go ahead and grab it. Uh, we are going to be continuing in our series in 1 Corinthians chapter 13. Uh, we've spent the last few weeks looking through this passage, trying to honestly consider what it means when we read John 13, 34, and 35, our, our verses of the year where Jesus says, A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another. Just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. So we're considering the reality that Jesus is talking to his disciples about what it looks like to be his disciples, to be a, to be a Christ follower. He's saying, this is how people will know that you're my followers. It's not because of how successful you are, not because of how pretty, how smart, how strong. It's not because of the country you come from. It's not because of your ethnicity. It's not the color of your skin. It's not even the family that you're born into. Jesus is telling his disciples, and he's telling us, at least, at least those of us who claim the name of Christ, those of us who have put our trust in Jesus Christ alone for salvation, those of us who are Christians, those of us who are Christ ones, he's telling us that the world will know that we are his disciples if we demonstrate this love for one another. Now, what type of love? We have that answer when he says, just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. So we've set off during these summer months to explore what in the world it means to love one another like this. What does that look like, that, that agape type of love? If the world is going to know, if they are going to see this, if it is going to be an, an identifying marker in the lives of Christ's people, this love, then the world, they, they're going to have to actually see it. Like it's going to have to be tangible. Again, it can't be an abstract idea. It has to be real. And so what does that look like? And what we've said is that this is essentially the test that the world has, that God has given to the world to judge whether or not we are who we say we are. God has given the world the right to look at you and I and decide based on this if we are who we say we are. And so if you will, and I really hope you will, uh, turn with me to 1 Corinthians 13. We'll begin with verse 1. This will... This will be a familiar passage to many of us. And so if we aren't careful, if we aren't careful, we'll sort of assume it instead of hearing it. Because in all likelihood, uh, you, you've heard it before. If nothing else, if you've been with us the last two weeks, you've heard it for the last two weeks. And so I want to encourage you to try and hear this for the first time. Try to hear this passage as if you actually care to hear what God has to say. Listen as though you intend to hear something. 1 Corinthians chapter 13, beginning verse 1. If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I am a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. And if I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains, but have not love, I am nothing. If I give away all I have, and if I deliver up my body to be burned, but have not love, I gain nothing. Love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never ends. As for prophecies, they will pass away. As for tongues, they will cease. As for knowledge, it will pass away. For we know in part and we prophesy in part, but when the perfect comes, the partial will pass away. 
When I was a child, I spoke like a child. I thought like a child. I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I gave up childish ways. For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, then I shall know fully, even as I have been fully known. So now faith, hope, and love abide, these three. But the greatest of these is love. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, I, I just want to confess to you that, that I need you. Um, that I need you to come and I need you to, to put your steadfast spirit within me. Uh, help me to rest in you alone. Lord, I pray that as we open your word this morning, that as we consider these things, Lord, that you would speak to us. And so I ask that. I ask that you would send your Holy Spirit on us. Don't let me get in the way of what you're trying to do here. Don't let my stammering tongue be a stumbling block to the ministry you intend to do here among us. And Lord, I pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. Two weeks ago, uh, two weeks ago we looked at the positive attributes of love. Uh, we looked at these characteristics that we see here in verse 4 of patience uh, and kindness. Dr. Weldon discussed how patience is long-suffering and how in order to be long-suffering you have to be long-bothered. That's not a very encouraging thing to consider that you're going to be long-bothered, but that's if you've been alive for any measure of time, you understand that is, in fact, life. That, that we are going to be bothered. And we looked at kindness as love expressed and not just spoken. That, that doing that which makes a difference. And then we sort of looked at the, the negative attributes last week. What love is not. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. Okay, so at this point, Paul is beginning to take aim at the church in Corinth. If you, if you don't feel that on some level, when you read through this passage, we, we might be missing something because he's writing to a church in Corinth. He's writing to people that he knows, people that he keeps in contact with, people that he has a deep and abiding affection for. And so he said, this is what love is. Remember, love is patient and kind. Paul is not, he's not just haphazardly mentioning things. He's not just choosing words out of the air. He's being very specific here. And listen, he's going to say more about what love is, uh, but we'll get to that in, in the next few weeks. But he's concerned. He's, he's concerned about some things that are going on in the family of faith there in Corinth. And we know if we consider the overall context of this letter, that if we, if we go back to the beginning of this letter, if we look back in chapter 1, that Paul begins with very pleasant greetings to the people there in Corinth. He says, he says I give thanks to my God always for you because of the grace of God that was given you in Christ Jesus. Now that's nice. Like, like that's a nice way to start a letter. I give thanks to my God always for you. Always for you because of the grace of God that was given you in Christ Jesus. That's a nice way to begin a letter. I, I would like to receive a letter with that type of beginning. I thank my God always for you. But then, but then, then it's going to kind of change. I mean, in verse 4, it says giving thanks for them always. But then in verse 10 of chapter 1, just a few verses later, Paul is saying, I appeal to you, brothers, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree and that there be no divisions among you but that you be united in the same mind and the same judgment. So he's saying, listen, I'm, I'm thankful for you. Yes, I'm thankful, but, but we need to chat. That this, is, this is sort of like a letter from a parent to their kid who's just gone off to college for like the first time. You, you know what I mean? It's, it's like, yes, I love you. I am, I am thankful for you. I am proud of you. I'm proud of the person that you've become. Um, you've, you've come so far. You know, we had low expectations, but you've really amped it up. And, and so I'm, I'm, I'm happy. 
I'm happy for you. But, I, but, I, but I've been hearing some stuff. You know, you've really been blowing up Facebook for the past couple of weeks, and it seems like, seems like you're having a lot of fun. Like, like a lot, a lot of fun. And because of that, because Paul cares for them, he's got this, he's got this sort of fatherly affection for them. He cares for them. He has, he has hopes for them. To a certain degree, he feels like a measure of responsibility for them. Because of that, he wants to address what he sees as a concern. And so when he's describing what love isn't, he's speaking from firsthand experience because he knows them. He's lived among them. And he's concerned, just, just like a father. He wants, well, he wants what's best for them. And so he says, love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. We saw that last week. And then we see our focus for this morning. It's right there in the middle of verse 5. Paul says, of love, it does not insist on its own way. Other translations might read, it is not selfish, it is not self-seeking, or does not seek its own thing. Considering its placement in the text, directly after the denouncement of arrogance and rudeness, one commentator says both of these arise from self-centeredness, and this is the very opposite of love. So what we're going to see to some degree is that this statement, that love does not insist on its own way, is sort of a summary statement. It's It's a point of crescendo in Paul's great effort to describe Everything that makes up what love is not. And to set the table for us, we really need to go all the way back to the beginning. So put a, put a marker here in 1 Corinthians. It's okay, we'll come back to it, but put a, put a marker there in 1 Corinthians and turn with me all the way back to Genesis. Like, like all the way back to the beginning. I'm, I'm talking page, it's page one in my Bible. So go back to page one. We see that we see there in Genesis 1 and 2 that God gives us a picture of how he created the heavens and the earth and everything in them. We see that God, is, that God is not a builder, but God is a creator. And there's an immense difference between the two. I, I, this is worth pointing out. God doesn't grab some raw materials and then get to work fashioning them together to build something. He, he doesn't go to some... Like he doesn't go to some cosmic Home Depot and pick out the stuff he needs because, well, because he doesn't have to. He, doesn't, he just speaks into being that which he desires to create. And so here's the difference. I don't create anything. I, I don't create anything. We, we use that word sometimes, create, to describe what we, what, to describe what we do. And to be sure, we can be creative. Okay, we can be creative. That's part of the imago Dei in us. It's part of the image of God in us. But we don't create, we build. Okay, we're, we're builders. That's what we do. We take the resources that are available to us, the created things, and we fashion them together into whatever we, we had imagined. And so whether that's a construction crew with wood and, and steel and concrete, or that's a kid with, with a piece of paper and a crayon, we are builders. God alone is creator. And as creator, God is sovereign over all. He is sovereign over all. It's, it's all his. That's why Abraham Kuyper, this is one of my favorite quotes from Abraham Kuyper. He says, there is not a square inch in the whole domain of human existence over which Christ, who is sovereign, does not cry, mine. There is not a square inch in the whole domain of human existence over which Christ, who is sovereign over all, does not cry, mine. And it's this God. It's the living God who created all things, is he who told the man not to eat of the fruit of one tree, just, just one 
tree. And in chapter 3, this is literally page 2 of my Bible, the man and woman mess it up. So we get one good page, and then it goes south, okay? And so look at me, look with me at Genesis 3, beginning in verse 1. Genesis 3, beginning in verse 1. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did God actually say to you, You shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden. But God said, You shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband who was was with her, and he ate. Then the eyes of, of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. Okay, man sins. Uh, The relationship between the man and his creator is fractured. Uh, They feel guilt, they feel feel shame, and they begin trying to hide. And ever since that time, humanity, okay, men and women, you and I, have been weaving fresh suits of fig leaves in order to to try and conceal the desires of a sinful heart. Now look at what the sin was. Okay, yes, it was rebellion. Yes, it was it was disobedience. Those are, those are correct terms. They knew what God had commanded and they did the opposite. But look at what it was. Look at, look at verse 6. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate and she also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate. So what she did, hear me now, what she did was choose her own way. She saw and she desired, her husband is standing there just like a goon the whole time. I mean, he's just useless in this moment. I mean, come on. And he's not leading in any way. He does not get off the hook for being the second one to eat of the fruit, okay? He, he was there, he watched it happen, and then he joined in. And, and listen, from that point on, from that moment on, sin is in the world. And listen to me, sin sin did more than just mess up man's relationship with his creator. It certainly did that, but it did more. As the one who was given dominion over the fish of the sea and the birds of the heavens and everything in the earth, the one that we call our federal head, Adam is our representative head, Adam's sin fractured everything. It fractured everything, all of it, every speck, the entirety of creation. And so the initial sin, the, the sin of Genesis 3, is sadly but simply the heart of man insisting on his own way. It's, it's seeing, it's, it's desiring, and it's taking that which they thought would satisfy their heart's desire. And, and listen, we have, that same, we have that same longing today. And so if you were to go from Genesis 3, okay, from page 2 to Genesis 4, you would find the story of Cain and Abel. And in that account, the first two brothers bring their offering to God. And we're told in chapter 4 that they bring their offerings to the Lord and that the Lord had regard for Abel and his offering, but for Cain and his offering, he had no regard. So Cain, being jealous of his brother and being angry at what he felt was a slight by God, he rose up against his own brother and he murdered him in the field. 
having no regard for anyone but himself. He considered only what his heart desired. What he wanted was all that mattered. He felt wounded, he felt slighted, so he acted to protect his own interests. That's, that's Genesis 4. You know, if we keep going, we'll find Abraham. We don't even have to get out of Genesis today. We'll find Abraham, the man who God chose to make a covenant with, to make his covenant with, the man of whom God was going to make a people, uh, who, who's going to make offspring as numerous as the stars of the heavens. And the only problem for Abraham was that he was really old and that his wife was barren. They, they have no offspring. Instead of trusting in God, trusting in God's time and God's work, God's faithfulness, Abraham and Sarah decide to, to take matters into their own hands, to do things their way, and they bring, well, they bring Hagar into the picture. Abraham thought God's way was too much to believe, so he chose his own way. How about the brothers of Joseph? Joseph is, Joseph is daddy's favorite. Now, we know Joseph ends up being in Egypt, but before any of that happens, before he gets there and he's working for Pharaoh, Joseph is daddy's favorite. He gets all the extra attention. He gets the fancy jacket, okay? He got, the, he got the coat of many colors. All the brothers are jealous of that. And to say that there, are, there is a strain in the family dynamics is, is a bit of an understatement. And Joseph takes it too far when he tells them about a dream he had where one day he would reign over them. And by the way, that's not the way to start off like today at breakfast. Guys, I had a dream. One day... You're all going to serve me. They're like, uh-huh, yeah, see what's going on. They're not having it. They seize the opportunity and they sell their brother into slavery because he was a nuisance, because he was a pain, and because he was getting in their way. We could keep going. By the way, we could keep going with this all day. Just consider King David. He goes out onto his porch one night. He sees a woman bathing on the roof. We can discuss whether or not that was wise on her part or not. But nevertheless, he, he sees her. He becomes infatuated with her. And then he takes her. He takes Bathsheba as if she were his own wife. The end of that result, the, the end result of that night being that she is now with child. And so David tries to cover it up. I mean, he tries to save face. He tries to, tries to weave that suit of fig leaf to try and make this thing go away. And in the end, he arranges for her actual husband to be brought home from war. Um, he he tries, to, tries to get him to, to help cover this up. And... Uh, and then eventually he sends him to the front line of war where it is an almost certainty and eventual reality that he'll be killed. When David's sin got in the way, he just sinned all the more in order to try to make it go away. I think we're noticing a trend here. We could look at Jonah, the prophet who didn't want to go God's way. So God swallowed him up with a fish, spit him out in Nineveh. And even when God blessed his ministry in Nineveh, Jonah still wasn't happy about it. I mean, he actually said, just kill me now so I don't have to see these Ninevites come to you. Samson, God's, God's judge who had his eyes on things that God had said would end in his destruction. Since the fall in Genesis 3, man has gone his own way, sought his own interest, and insisted on being in control, even when everything continues to go wrong. We see it with the Pharisees in Jesus' time. As they tried to create a new law, a law that was weighty and oppressive, a law that would enable them to maintain their seats of prominence, in society and exercise control over the people. This is what Jesus referred to as a burdensome yoke. You see, they didn't think God's way was good enough, so they tried to improve it and do things their way. 
And we see this in our own lives. We do. If, if we're honest, if we really look at ourselves honestly, we see the same thing in our lives. It won't be comfortable, but it'll be there. We see it when we attempt to manipulate others in order to get them to bend our way. Uh, we see it when we hold others to standards that we would never be willing to, to live up to ourselves. We see it when we attempt to make rules for others based on our exceptions. We see it when we betray our friends and in how we react when we are betrayed. You know, if you just consider Cain, you know, Cain had one friend on the planet. He had one friend. I mean, sure, he had his parents, but he had, all he had was his brother Abel. That's it. That's all he had. Imagine the level of trust that Abel had in Cain. Imagine when they were walking out into the field that day. Here's the one, here's the one that you have looked up to. He's the one that, that, that you have followed around. You know, you, know, you know how little brothers are with big brothers? I mean, they follow them. They, I don't want to paint a picture that's totally inaccurate here. I mean, brothers get after each other. I mean, they, they fight, okay? Our, our, we have a seven-month-old who's already trying to take down big brother. I mean, he's, he's after him. He bites, he claws, he grabs and pulls hair. He's into that whole thing. Our baby plays dirty. He, uh, he does. We apologize in advance uh, for you all who have children in the nursery. Um, I'm sorry. Now, he's, he's growing teeth, but little brothers look up to big brothers. They trust them. They, they emulate them. How could this older brother, how could Cain betray that trust and murder his own brother? You see, this is what happens when we put ourselves in the place of ultimate importance. It's what happens when we insist on our own way. At some point in all of this, looking back through Scripture, considering our own lives, we have to understand that apart from Christ, this is everything that we are. We don't come to the table neutral. We don't come to the table with empty hands. We come to the table bearing our sin, bearing, bearing our guilt, carrying filthy rags, offering, offering our mess to God. This is who we are. We are those by nature who insist on our own way. We are those who take what isn't ours at the expense of someone else. We are those who look out for ourselves without concern for, for how it's going to impact those around us. We are those who doubt God's promises. We are those who, we are those who will run to the right. Sorry, the right. Even when God is telling us, why don't you just take a couple steps to the left? We're those people. Now listen, we're not happy about it. I'm not saying we're happy about it. This is the longing of every heart is to not be that way. But this is who we are. And this isn't good news. This is actually the bad news. That this is everything that we are. Just as David confessed in Psalm 51, Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. This is, this is everything that we are. But it's not everything, well, it's not everything we were meant to be. So what were we? What were we meant to be? In Genesis 1.26, God said, Let us make man in our image after our likeness and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. And then it says in verse 27, So God created man in his own image and the image of God he created him, male and female, he created them. So we were created to be God's image bearers. We were created to be reflectors of his glory. We were created, please do not miss this, to bring God glory. 
This was God's decree. This was his eternal purpose according to the counsel of his will, whereby for his own glory he has foreordained whatsoever comes to pass. As God is sovereign, as God is creator, everything is his. All of it belongs to him. Everything. And that includes us. That includes us. So as creatures, as created things, we were meant to bring God glory. And that's because everything, everything that exists is for God's glory. This past week, I was walking down the beach with two of my kids, uh, the two of them who can walk. Um, that was The youngest is still in more of an eating sand phase at this point. And, and we, were, we were just desperately trying to find shark's teeth. I mean, that was, we were into that, okay? We're walking all bent over, you know, just staring at, you see these people, we were those people. We were those, we were those people, just, just the three of us cruising down Edisto, our faces just staring at the sand and the shells beneath our feet, searching for these little fossilized teeth. But we weren't, we, we, were, we really weren't doing a very good job. I mean, listen, if, if you know me, I, I'm zoned in. I mean, I'm focused. You give me a job to do, and I'm like, yeah, I'm going to find every shark's tooth on this beach. That's, that's me. My son wants shark's teeth, and I'm going to find him some shark's teeth. But the kids, man, they are totally distracted. Okay, you know, they're, they're talking and playing. They're pointing out cool stuff. They're like watching the pelicans fly by. They're doing all that sort of stuff. They're just laughing, carrying on with one another. They have, in my view, completely lost track of the purpose for this walk in the first place. (laughs) Which was finding shark's teeth. That was it. So I'm all, come on, guys. Come on, we got to focus. You got to focus on, you know, they're there. They're not, they're here. (laughs) We can't be getting distracted or we're we're going to miss them. I I catch myself literally... uh, telling my kids to stop playing at the beach and basically to go to work. (laughs) This is the realization that confronted me on Edisto Beach, right near beach access number 27. Um, And in that moment, it occurred to me, it really really hit me in the face. Um, it It was painful. They weren't the ones who were confused. They weren't the ones who were distracted. You see, the chief end The ultimate purpose of our going away together was to spend some undistracted time with one another. It was for us to enjoy being together as a family. It was for us to draw near to one another and grow in love and affection and all that good stuff. The express purpose of our family vacation, if you had to sum it up, the reason that we got in the car, the reason we loaded up all our stuff, and we loaded up some stuff. I, have a, I, took, I took a picture to prove how much stuff we took to the beach because it was, it's record book worthy. The reason we loaded up and drove two and a half hours was to have fun with our family. How quickly, how quickly can we lose track of genuine purpose? You know, it's really amazing just how quickly I can forget central things and begin to focus on, on peripheral things. And before we know it, we're insisting on our way. When our way really wasn't that good of a way to begin with. We can convince ourselves that we have the planned, uh, the angle, the best idea, and in the end, never consider if it's what God actually desires for us. When we read 
1 Corinthians 13, 5, the love does not insist on its own way. When we hear those words and consider what it means, we can begin to gain an understanding of the chief end of man. We can begin to feel the weight of God's purpose in creating us in the first place, which was to glorify Him and to enjoy Him forever. And when we come to an understanding of how often we fail in this, we can begin to see God's purpose in sending His Son to claim His people from sin and death. When we understand everything we are in light of everything that we were meant to be, we can fully embrace everything that Jesus is. We see Paul describing how Jesus lived this out in Philippians 2. I know you read this last week, but we can't read it enough. Philippians 2, when he says, Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Then he says, Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. You know, where the first Adam was selfish, Jesus was selfless. Where the first Adam was disobedient, Jesus was obedient. Where Cain was jealous and spiteful, Jesus was willing to give all of himself. Where Abraham was short-sighted and doubtful, Jesus, Jesus saw the big picture and trusted. Where David was distracted by peripheral things, Jesus remained focused on the central thing. That's why Paul wrote in 2 Corinthians 1.20 that all the promises of God find their yes in Him. That is why it is through Him that we utter our amen. We utter our amen to God for His, for His glory. All the promises of God find their yes in Him. You will not find anyone else in Scripture who did it perfect. You won't. You can look all day. The names that you remember from children's stories, the names that you've heard and hold in high regard, yes, they are worthy to be regarded, but they are not perfect people. They're the type of guy who walks down the beach with their kid and goes, why are you guys not focused on finding the shark's teeth? He's the federal head of his people, Jesus is. A people that he, that he calls a new creation in 2 Corinthians 5. In Christ, the old has passed away, and now, well, well now it's not about me. Now it's not, it's not about my comfort. It's not about my convenience. It's not about my preference or my desires. It's not about my way. As a new creation, the old has passed away. And you say, probably rightly in your heart, well, it doesn't feel, it doesn't feel like that. Like if you had seen me on the way to church this morning, you wouldn't have thought the old had passed away. If you, if you had seen me in the grocery store with my kids, you wouldn't, you wouldn't think the old had passed away. You say it doesn't feel like the old has passed away. And here's what I'm going to tell you is that maybe, just maybe, we are far too concerned with how we feel when in truth how we feel matters far less than who Jesus is and what Jesus has said. And in his word, we are told, we're told that in him we are a new creation. Not that we might be a new creation one day, but that we have been reconciled to Christ the old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. And listen to me, the new creation, the one born again in Christ, doesn't insist on his own way. The new creation doesn't hold himself as the highest standard, but looks to Christ, who did nothing out of selfish ambition, who did nothing out of conceit, but who walked in humility and who looked at us, who looked at us 
his people. He looked at us as those worthy, worthy to die for. That we were worth dying for. We were worth sacrificing himself to save. And for our sake, God made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. You see, at the cross, Jesus paid the ultimate price in order to bring, well, to bring you home. In order to give to give dead men life. He took all our mess and he gave us all his righteousness. So here's how this plays out in our lives. It means my life is not my own. It's not. It is not my own. There are times when my flesh tries to tell me that it is, but it's not. It's not. My life belongs to my God and to my King. As the hymn says, my life is hid with Christ on high, with Christ my Savior and my God. My life is hid with Christ on high with Christ my Savior and my God. And because Christ has commanded it, you need to hear this, my life belongs to you. It means that that you and I are one body. We are one body with many parts. Now, I might be a toenail. There are some days I feel like a toenail, okay? Even like the little ghetto baby pinky toenail sometimes. That's how I feel in life. But we're still part of the body. Still part of the body. And then Christ commanded us in John 13, 34 and 35 to love one another. Yeah, we're coming full circle here. We started with John 13, let's end there too. To love one another just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. It means that we show each other the same love that Christ has shown to us. He never asked us to do anything that he wasn't willing to do himself. And a sign of this love is the mutual submission to one another. Listen, we we practice this in our church. If you didn't know, we we elect officers, we elect elders and deacons to, to lead us. We trust them to lead us in obedience to God's purpose for us. It means it means we trust one another, we defer to one another. It means that we love one another. It means we live out Romans 12, 10. Where it says to love one another with brotherly affection. To outdo one another in showing honor. It means that we live and move as if Jesus is who he says he is. And we are who we say we are. Let that be true of us here. Let that be true of us here. And let the world see it. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, it's a humbling thing to come face to face with your failings in this way. God, I have struggled this week to come to terms with with how far short I fall of your glory. How far short I fall of living up to this love that you've commanded us to show to one another. God, I pray that you would do work in our hearts here. I pray that you would continue speaking to us this week. Continue to remind us. Help us to see. God, help us to draw near to you. Help us to draw near to you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.